We ask you to turn with us today, if you have your scriptures with you, to the book of Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Of course, if you don't have a copy of the Word of God with you today, you can find one in the pew directly in front of where you're seated. It's our intent to study the account today of a couple of well-known people in the Word of God, two of humanity's earliest people, Cain and Abel. And as we speak about Cain and Abel today, I've described them as the first martyr and the first persecutor. The first martyr and the first persecutor. This is something that took place thousands of years ago, six millennia ago. And yet at the same time, the account that we read today is very fresh and relevant to us in that it gives us a picture of many of the struggles that are in the world today, even today. You have the great battle between those who love Christ, those who fear God, and those who despise God. And one of the theological observations that we could make concerning our world today as we study the account of Cain and Abel is we can expect a similar reaction from many in the world around us today as Abel received from his brother Cain. We hope to consider, first of all, this account. Secondly, we want to interpret this account through a theological framework. In other words, we want to take the theology of Scripture and apply to this case, and we have help with that from Bible writers in the New Testament, to explain why both of these men were the way that they were. Then we want to draw some practical applications from this, ways that this can benefit us in our own lives. Even the negative example of Cain, we can learn some things to benefit ourselves in our own life. And then finally, we want to look at how this example points to even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, diving directly into the account here, beginning in verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, this was the first human being that was ever born on planet Earth. This is their oldest child, Cain. Adam and Eve had, in the previous chapter, sinned. They had been driven from the presence of God, from the perfection, the paradise of the Garden of Eden. If you're wondering if that's some sort of an allegory or a metaphor, if you read the words of Jesus in the New Testament, he described Adam and Eve as literal human beings. When you read the theological writings of the Apostle Paul, when he wrote about death and sin, he described Adam as a literal man who sinned, and through his sin, death and sin passed upon all human beings. So if we take away the literal account of Adam and Eve, Jesus' teaching on marriage makes no sense. Paul's teaching on depravity makes no sense. And so Scripture expects us to, by faith, view this as a literal account. And that's our understanding of it today. We believe this is literal, not allegorical for the fall of man, some sort of fall from some sort of primitive perfection, and we really don't know the true account, but this is the literal account of humanity. This is God-inspired history. Adam and Eve are driven from the Garden of Eden, and as you know, God places cherubims with a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the tree of life. In the tree, or in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life that would enable Adam, we presume, to live forever. And you have also with it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not an evil tree. It was not an evil fruit. It was good. Everything that God made was what? Very good. But God commanded him not to eat of it. And his violation of that was bad. It was evil. It was sin. And when Adam sins, he's driven from the presence of God. God did reveal himself to Adam in the Garden of Eden. God drives him from the Garden of Eden, and he places creatures there. It's written in the plural here in Genesis 3.24, cherubims. Now, I like to point this out. The angels and cherubs and other creatures that are celestial beings that we read about in Scripture, they don't look like the common depictions of the celestial beings in our artwork. 
Angels do not have long, white, flowing, fluffy wings, and they don't have a halo. How do you know that? Because they are covert in Scripture. They look many times to be men, and they're described as men. That also tells us that they are, in appearance, masculine, though we know through Jesus' teaching that they're neither male nor female when it comes to taking wives and having children, that sort of thing. They're neither married nor given in marriage, I should say. But they're masculine in their appearance. Cherubs are not fat, floating babies. In Western art, cherubs are always fat, floating babies. And you can look at Sistine Chapel and several other depictions in our artwork to see what men believe they are. Whatever they are, whatever they look like, these are the creatures that probably do have wings. They carry, in this case, a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, could you imagine a fat floating baby with a flaming sword? How terrifying would that be? Not very. Not very. That sounds like something out of a science fiction movie or Doctor Who or something. But now this is some sort of a celestial, celestial being that carries a sword and it drives people, keeps people away from the Garden of Eden. You may wonder, where's the Garden of Eden today? Well, a few chapters later, you have a global flood and the Garden of Eden, along with everything else, was destroyed in that very catastrophically. Adam and Eve are driven out. They have their first child. She conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. That was a remarkable thing for them. They'd never experienced that before. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, this is going to be important as they begin to present their offerings unto the Lord. They present their offerings of what they do. Cain would bring forth that which he had grown. Abel would bring forth that which he slaughtered out of his flock. Now, just as a bit of biblical history, or perhaps you might even say trivia, up until the flood of Noah, there's no occurrence of a man, no record of a man or a woman eating an animal. But after they leave the ark, they're told, eat these clean beasts. They are to be to you for food. All the vegetation of the world had been destroyed. And so he tells them to eat these animals. And from that time on, Mankind has ingested animals. So you then you might wonder, why is Abel a keeper of sheep before men ate any sort of livestock? Well, number one, perhaps they drank of the milk of the flock. Number two, perhaps they used those animals for clothing. Where would they have received the example of men using animal skins for clothing? Well, when God drove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, what was the interaction that took place between God and Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam, where are you? Well, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. Who told you that you were naked? You see, he had total innocence as a natural man prior to sin. He didn't know he was naked and he wasn't ashamed. Who told you that you were naked? Well, uh, he comes out wearing the fig leaf. God said, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat of? And he says, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she did give me to eat and, and I ate. And so then you have the curses that God gave to Adam and Eve and to Satan, who had tempted, beguiled Eve. But prior to exiling them, what does God do? He brings unto them animal skins and he clothes them with animal skins. Who gave the example of slaughtering an animal to use the skin for clothing? God gave that example. Now, there's a great theological significance in that, too, because for man's nakedness to be clothed and therefore his shame to be clothed and covered, something had to die. Something had to die. Adam and Eve hide themselves with the fig leaves. First of all, they chafe, they're uncomfortable. They annoy you. Second of all, they do not insulate you from the world around you. Could you imagine walking around outside? So I walked in today and somebody said, you shaved. And I said, I wanted you to get cold. Because as long as I had the facial hair, we were going to have everlasting early fall. And since I shaved the next day, it's going to be 20 degrees. 
It's the way it works. If, you, if it hasn't rained in a month, if I wash my car, it will rain. If you had fig leaves for clothing and you walk outside, you will immediately realize how fig leaves are insufficient to clothe you. They wither away, and the next thing you know, you are as good as you were before. God provides clothing. It's a lasting covering, but it also pointed towards the death of our Savior Jesus in that our covering of our shame is only through the death of another. And so God is giving types and shadows of his gospel all the way back after the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. God would do this in two ways. First of all, the provision of the clothing through the death of an animal. And two, in the teaching that the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus, who would be born of the Virgin Mary, would bruise the head, crush the head of Satan. This is Genesis 3.15. So God preaches his gospel before any man ever preached his gospel all the way back at the fall of man, giving them hope. Giving them hope. Abel was a keeper of sheep. That means he's a shepherd. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, there's all sorts of biblical symbolic imagery here. Cain's livestock, or Cain's living, rather, was that of the earth. One of the depictions of that first man in Paul's writings was that he was of the earth, earthy. What sort of a living was Cain making? It was of the earth, earthy. It comes out of the ground, and there's nothing wrong with being a gardener. There's nothing wrong with farming. That's how we survive. God gave the food that comes out of the ground for us to eat. But you can see imagery here. Abel is keeping the sheep. What individual in Scripture is referred to as the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus? And so we see imagery of the Lord Jesus in Abel. We see imagery of us in Cain. For that Abel is one who's watching the sheep, a shepherd, and Cain is one who is bringing forth of the ground, bringing forth of the earth. To me, that's very, very symbolic. It's extraordinarily symbolic. These men, as you read, in process of time, in process of time, reading commentaries about this portion of scripture this week there are various ways that men understand that some interpret that to mean at the conclusion of a week on the last day of the week in other words they would be bringing an offering to god on the seventh day of the week which was the sabbath however that seems to be conjecture and it seems to be a bit of a stretch there's not significant evidence to describe that some believe it was a year end some believe it was the time of harvest but in the process of time i want those words to remain in your mind as we begin discussing what happens to Cain as he leaves his family and as he departs from nearby to Eden and he goes to dwell in the land of Nod. Specifically, we'll consider the fact that Cain was married and he was afraid that everywhere he went, men would want to kill him. Well, if Cain is 15-year-old Cain and Abel is 13-and-a-half-year-old Abel, who are they married to? Who wants to kill Cain? No. In the process of time, the events that we read of in Cain and Abel's lives are not 15 years after the fall of man. It could be generations later. Adam and Eve were totally healthy human specimens. They would have had children from the moment they left the Garden of Eden once a year, once every year and a half. And their children, once they were of age, would have begun to take wives of their siblings and then their nieces and nephews and cousins and you have the world colonized and if you're thinking that's gross that's the way god created it and suffered it to be in the beginning of time now sometimes atheists and evolutionists like to make fun of this account but might i turn the tables on them well who did your first man marry a monkey or did the monkey have two humans in which case, if the monkey had two humans, guess who your first man married? Hopefully his sister, because <laughs> it would have to be a man and a woman. Anyway, people like to make fun of that, and you're like, uh, in your worldview, explain to me how your worldview makes sense. Here we have God creating a man and a woman. They haven't experienced all of the genetic decay 
and corruption and mutation that we've experienced over thousands of years. They have children, their children take wives of each other and then cousins and nieces and nephews and humankind, humankind begins to colonize through the world. God had commanded them to subdue the world. That means to conquer it, go out into the world to colonize it, to conquer it, to subdue it. Go and cut down trees and build houses. It is not sinful for you to cut down a tree and build a house. Young people, it's not sinful for you to cut down a tree and build a house. It's totally fine that we live in a, in a nice subdivision where we've cut down the trees to build our homes because God said for you to go and do that. It's fine when you wear leather shoes. It's fine when you wear a leather belt. It's fine if the leather in your car, your, the seats in your car are made of leather. We in this country have the structure of the world totally upside down where the planet's more important than the animals. The animals are more important than the people. And of the people, the children are more important. And lastly on that list is dad. Well, I'm just going to tell you that that's not the way that God set up the world. It is God, Christ, man, wife, children, animals. Okay? Now, I didn't intend to say any of that, but be that as it may. Won't cost you anything extra. In the process of time, years, decades, Cain brought forth of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. Now, in the law, there were commandments on how to offer the fat. You know that there are some passages of Scripture that says, and the fat belongs to the Lord. And that's always a joke when someone gains weight over the holidays. This is sanctified body weight because the fat belongs unto the Lord. It's always shocking when you gain eight pounds between when you grow a beard and shave, and you shave and you look in the mirror and you say, who are you? Anyway, so the fat is brought, and this would be even in accordance with some of the laws that God would give later, Abel offers of the firstlings of his flock. Now, as these two brothers bring these offerings unto the Lord, you might be wondering, how was it that they knew to do this? Well, more than likely, they were taught to do this by Adam. Scripture doesn't say, but we understand that the father is responsible for the spiritual teaching, the training, the upbringing of his children, this is why we try to read Scripture to the children. It's why I lecture them ad nauseum, never-endingly, on righteousness and things to avoid and the way that they ought to live because the dad is responsible for the spiritual training of his children. More than likely, Adam had trained them to do this. This was something that men did in the beginning of time. Now, there's some New Testament passages that would corroborate this. In the book of Romans chapter 1, as we learn about the downfall of society, we learn that in the beginning, men generally knew they had an awareness of their creator. But they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and so they abandoned the awareness that all society had in the presence of God, accountability to their creator, the awareness that God created them, and as their creator, he was their Lord, and as their Lord, he was their judge. And they turned and served idols. And then they worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans chapter 1. So early society in general presented some sort of offerings to God. And we find evidence of that here in Genesis 4 and in Romans chapter 1. Now here is the language that is going to be central to everything else we discuss today. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. He was filled with indignation, and his countenance fell. His countenance fell. How does Abel know that his offering is, is, is accepted? How does Cain know that his offering is not accepted? Those are mysteries that I'd love the answer to. 
Some people believe, and this is common in a lot of old Jewish literature, that when Abel presented his offering unto the Lord, that God sent fire down to devour that. And you say, well, where would they get that idea? Because God did that many times in the Old Testament. One of the most notable cases of that is when Elijah was on the mount and the prophets of Baal come to him and he presents a challenge and he says, you bring your offering to your God and I'll bring my offering to my God. And these prophets of Baal, they bring their offering, they put it on the altar, they call upon their God to burn it up with fire and nothing happens. And so Elijah begins to make fun of him. Maybe he's on a walk. Maybe he's asleep. Is your God on a trip? Where is he at? I love the sarcasm of Elijah. I love the sarcasm of Elijah. They begin to cut themselves and engage in chaotic behavior. But Elijah takes that offering and calls upon God and fire comes down from heaven and devours it all. There were times when God would light the fire and devour his offerings. This was part of the sin of Nadab and Abihu because they created strange fire. They were descendants of Aaron who were in the priestly lineage and they burned their own fire and it offended God and God slew them because they had violated the law of God. They were struck dead. Maybe fire fell from heaven and devoured Abel's sacrifice. Maybe God simply spoke because throughout these early chapters of Genesis, God is speaking in the world. There are times in human history when God audibly spoke to man. What are some more recent occurrences of this? Well, when the Lord Jesus was here, God spoke to us by his son. And in the life of Jesus, there were times when Jesus would do something, when something would take place, and God the Father would speak to men concerning his Son. One occurrence of this is at the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, a voice thunders from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. You have a Presence, the presence of all three persons of the Trinity there when Jesus is baptized. Another occurrence of that in the New Testament is at the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John are asleep and they wake up and Jesus is transfigured. He's glowing. He's in all of his glory. The second person of the Godhead, the Word of God made flesh, God incarnate in all of his glory before them. He's transfigured and He's speaking with Moses and Elijah and Peter and James and John say, let's build three tabernacles, three tents, one for all three of them. And clouds overshadow the other two and a voice sounds from heaven. This is my son. Hear ye him. It's the only one you need to be concerned with. You need to be concerned with Christ. Peter, James and John. Sometimes God speaks. Perhaps God simply spoke and revealed his pleasure with Abel's offering and not to Cain's. Either way, God had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. Notice the specific language. The Lord had respect first unto Abel and secondly to his offering. Unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. In other words, first to Cain and then to his offering. He had not respect. It's going to be important as we begin to view this through a theological framework. Now, while there are theological reasons to consider on the surface regarding God accepting one offering and not the other, let me just remind us all that God is sovereign. And if God says, I will pleasingly accept this offering, and not that offering, then God's will be done. If God says, I'm pleased with the offering of a lamb, but I'm not pleased with the offering of the crops, who are any of us to say, well, God, you should have accepted both of them? Could you imagine him saying, in essence, what people say when they say God was wrong, does that make your skin crawl and the hair stand up on the back of your neck? To say, God, you were wrong for not accepting Cain's offering and accepting Abel's. 
We are literally putting ourselves in a position of authority over God if we question God on those matters. If there's one thing that's clear from beginning to end of the Word of God, it is, Thy will be done. God is sovereign. God does what God wants when God wants to do it. This is almost cliche, but history is His story. He determines what pleases Him, what He will accept, what He will reject. It is God that hath made us and not we ourselves, Psalm 100. And so if God says, I will accept this offering and not that offering, blessed be the name of the Lord. We're so high-minded in the world today that we place ourselves in a position of judgment over God. God forbid. God does what he wants. And we're to simply say, thy will be done. Are we those that fear God? The heart that fears God shouldn't look at the decisions of God and challenge them or question them. But the heart that fears God should simply say, God, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. That's literally to be a part of our prayer lives. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That men would do his will to the same degree as the angels of God who obey him. God accepts Abel's. He does not accept Cain's. Now, I mentioned a few examples of God doing as God pleases. Nadab and Abihu was one such example that brought strange fire to God, and they were judged of that. Another example that's very similar to that is in the life of David as the Philistines had the ark and they were plagued for that. The children of Israel are told to come get it. They place it on a cart and they're bringing it back on a cart. You might remember that in the law, they were told not to carry it by way of cart, but how? Stabs. Placed in the rings on the side of the ark, they were to lift it up on their shoulders and they were to carry the ark everywhere they went. They've already made a mistake right there. They've already made a mistake right there. They've got it on an ox cart. It begins to shake. Uzzah reaches up and he places his hand on it, well-meaning as he might be. But because he placed his hand on the ark of God and because God's laws were not obeyed, Uzzah died immediately. Now, we don't believe that Uzzah died and went to hell. He had reverence for that ark and he had reverence for God, but he made a mistake and the mistake cost him dearly. Sometimes when it deals with the presence of God, the consequences are very, very severe. Why? Because God's mean? No, because God is holy and we are not. And when unholy creatures come into the presence of a holy God, there is fear and there is terror. A friend of mine asked me this question this morning in a group of a couple of preachers. What does it mean to fear God? How do you define that? And another preacher and I answered almost simultaneously. And our answers were different, but they were also the same. One of the words that we both used was awareness. To fear God means that I am aware of His holiness in the depth of my soul, and I'm also aware of my unrighteousness. And to me, before my eyes, I see that and I feel that. And because of that, I have this deep reverence for God, this fear of Him. I fear God. I understand that He could cast me into torments and He would be just. But also, I'm not scared of Him. Through Christ, I love Him and I know that He sent His Son into the world to die for me. And so, this love casts out fear. Cain's countenance immediately falls. Cain was very wroth. Notice verse 5. His reaction to this was one of anger and jealousy, which will be some of the practical things that we speak about today. Cain was very wroth, very wroth. He was filled with anger. He wasn't just slightly annoyed. He wasn't slightly offended. He was incensed. He was enraged. And he's first angry at God, 
And secondly, he's jealous of his brother. Jealous of his brother. And he begins to have a conversation with God. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance falling? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? Now please understand that the acceptance there is not in a redemptive context, but a familial context. We're not learning about heaven and hell when it comes to Cain's acceptance. We're reading about Cain's status in the world. He is the older brother. He is the heir. He is to be the one who inherits everything from Adam. He's to be in the position of authority over his brother. We still respect those laws many times today in human society, in various places in the world. These principles, societal principles of the elder being the one who inherits and having the management of the estate of his parents is something that dates back all the way to the beginning of human history. It's amazing in Scripture then when God turns that structure on its head. What's a notable example of that? Jacob and Esau, in which God loved Jacob and he said, the elder shall serve the younger. Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? If you do well, is your life not going to go well for you? If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Cain killed him. You know, it's amazing as human beings, you don't have to teach us to hit. You don't have to teach us to bite. When our kids were little, I promise you, they never saw the example of Rachel or myself biting anyone. People say that children are just mean because they see that example in the home. I promise you, we don't bite each other. And yet, little toddler Lydia, little toddler Elijah, little toddler Annabelle, little toddler Micah, they bite the next one older than them when they bother them. I left Ethan out of that because he's the firstborn, he's the oldest. So he had no siblings to bite. You don't have to teach them to bite. They do that naturally. Why? Because wickedness is bound in the heart. Evil is there. Without Christ, we are born totally depraved. We come from the womb speaking lies. Our feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Cain killed Abel. This is the first recorded death. It is the first recorded occurrence of murder. The first man born into the world. What do you mean born into the world? Well, prior to that, you had Adam who was created and you have Eve, which was taken from Adam. The first man born into the world was a murderer. There's so many doctrinal principles in this chapter that, that theologians have been preaching since the gospel was revealed unto us. Cain is totally depraved. He slays his brother. God comes to him and he says, Cain, where is Abel thy brother? I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? That's another sin. He just lied. And he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth, a wanderer. You're going to be a wanderer. Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Now he's murmuring and complaining. You'd think he would be 
glad that God was so long-suffering and merciful to him that he didn't take his life right there? What did Cain deserve? Death. In God's law, when God gave his holy standard, it's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. When you take a life, your life is taken. In fact, there were many lesser crimes that a person could commit, in our mind lesser, that resulted in the death penalty. And he complains. He complains. It's greater than I can bear. Thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from the face from thy face shall I be hid. Remember, God, his presence is there near Eden in that day. In fact, some people believe that even when these offerings were made, they were brought back to the entryway to Eden. That's, again, speculation. I'm driven from your face. I'll be a vagabond. Anybody that finds me will want to slay me. Everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Now, you can only die once. It doesn't mean that Cain thinks he's going to die over and over again. It just means that he believed everyone else's intent would be to kill him for what he had done. This was a scandal. There were a lot of people in the world at this time. The Lord places a mark on him and says, Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold if they kill Cain. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, which means wandering, on the east of Eden. And from here you have Cain knowing his wife, conceiving, and building a city. So let's begin to view this through a theological grid. We should interpret every occurrence in the world through a theological framework. When men do what they do, we need to view it through theology. Theology explains humanity. It explains why we do what we do. It explains how we came to be where we are. It explains the only hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It explains providence. It explains why we have Food, it explains why this world will never be destroyed until God is done with it. Theology explains the world. Theology helps us understand the world. To quote Michael Gowens in his Systematic Theology, every believer should be a systematic theologian. And whether we understand it or not, whether we realize it or not, we are all theologians in one way or another. The sad thing is most people who know Jesus just invent their own theologies based upon what they think and feel and want. We should derive our theology from thus saith the word of the Lord. Let's view this through Scripture. Theological framework, a grid, if you will. Why was Abel's sacrifice received? You notice that God had respect first unto Abel and then unto his offering. You don't have to wonder. A lot of times people say, well, because it was a sh of the flock, it was a lamb or a sheep, and Cain's came from the ground, and so God was pleased with that offering, but he wasn't pleased with the offering of Cain because it came from the ground. I'm going to tell you why God accepted Abel's offering. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews 11 gives us the honor roll of faith, and the first individual of faith that we read of in Hebrews chapter 11 is none other than Abel. Hebrews 11:4 By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. That tells us that the doctrine of justification by faith that is being declared righteous by faith was a reality all the way back in Genesis 4. These aren't new principles. Now they might be mysteries that are revealed in recent ages by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain and obtained witness that he was righteous. When you serve God by faith, you obtain witness that you are righteous. That is justification by faith, which is a theological concept. Viewing the events of the world through theology. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain 
by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Faith witnesses his righteousness. Further, Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, we can do nothing that pleases God. This is why the gift that God gives us at the new birth is faith. Because everything else that we are to do in the service of God is to be by faith and through faith that he has given us. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is of the operation of God in Colossians. Jesus is the author and finisher of it in Hebrews 12.2. It is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. God gives it to us at the new birth, and through it we serve Him. Why did God receive Abel's offering? Because Abel did it through faith, and Cain did not. You might even reason that it was the faith that God had given Abel that allowed him to offer the type of sacrifice that foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the giving over, the giving over, the slaughtering, the sacrifice of one of the sheep of his flock. For Abel to be a man of faith, Abel was a man who had received salvation. God had saved him. Now I want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 and just give you the order of salvation. How is salvation accomplished in a person's life? What all theologically, as we would say, takes place when God saves a man? Abel is a man that's received all of this. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Now listen to me. According as, as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. It begins with the choosing of the Father. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We talked about that last week as we looked at sanctification. We were set aside by God the Father before the world began. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Don't be afraid of that word. It means that God before time set your destiny to be conformed to the image of Christ when the world is destroyed. Predestinated. Your destiny was set by God in a positive way before the world began. The word of God never says God predestinated people to hell. People that are in hell end up there by their own works. But we've been predestinated under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. But he doesn't stop there. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Jesus shed his blood for us and redeemed us, bought us back from the penalty of sin. We have forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But it doesn't end there. Chapter 2 and verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. You've been brought to spiritual life through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And you are now His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2.10 All of these things had happened unto Abel, which is why he was a man of faith. If you are a man or a woman of faith today, all of those things happened unto you. All of those things happened unto you. And heaven will be your home. What about Cain? Abel offers this sacrifice that is acceptable to God through faith, which if you paid attention, you know that our ability to serve God is given by God. And our service to God is through God. What of Cain? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. For this is the message, verse 11, that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. 
Wherefore slew he him because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Cain is indicative of, he's the epitome of an unregenerate man. He is of that wicked one. His works are evil. And because his works are evil, God does not accept them. Why did God accept Abel's works? Because they were of faith, because Abel was born of God. Cain was a child of the devil. Why would he bring an offering to God? Because he was taught to. Perhaps he thought God would deal harshly with him if he didn't. Perhaps it was a, a case of self-preservation. Perhaps it was the thing everyone did in culture. We don't know, but we do know that it was evil. We need to understand that the sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination unto God. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination unto God. John chapter 8, Jesus spoke to Jews who were unbelieving. And he told them that they were ignorant of him. They could not believe him. They could not hear his word because they were what? Of their father, the devil. Cain was of his father, the devil. He was exactly where Adam placed him in sin. Abel's godly traits were of God. Cain is exactly where Adam placed him under the influence of Satan. And because of that, as Romans 3 says, as Isaiah 59 says, there was no fear of God before his eyes. His mouth was an open sepulcher. His feet were swift to shed innocent blood. Viewing this occurrence through a theological framework explains to us why both men were who they were, why they did what they did, and why God interacts with them in the way that he does. Now, thinking more practically about this in the remainder of time that we have today, and again, we remind you that the root of Cain's wickedness, of his wicked actions, the murder, the anger, the jealousy was Satan. He was a carnal, unregenerate, unsaved man. This is all of us without Christ in the world. I'm going to give you three warnings against three sins that Cain is guilty of. Because even though we're not Cain, and even though we're not of that wicked one, even though we are of Christ and we love him and we serve him, we still have the nature of the flesh. The same nature Cain was acting completely under the influence of. Number one, jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Cain was jealous. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6 says, Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Why do you think he says that? Because men have been so jealous of others in their lives that they will even take the life of those they are jealous of. Jealousy is cruel. If we view the good things that anyone has, every good and perfect gift, every good and every perfect gift, comes down from the Father of lights. If we view every good and perfect gift as something that comes down from the Father of lights, James chapter 1, then every breath we take, every meal we eat, the homes we live in, the occupation that we have, our loved ones, everything that we're talented at, it's all a gift to look at someone else's gift and be angry at them for that. To be jealous, to be envious, literally challenges God's decisions for you or for others. That's exactly what Cain did. He was jealous because of God's interaction with someone else. If we realize that what God has given us, the blessings we have are blessings of God. And we're angry about it. We literally challenge God. And that's exactly what Cain did. He challenged God. Number two, Cain was a man of wrath. There's so many Proverbs that speak about wrath, about anger. And it warns, the scriptures warn against anger and wrath. Let me just read a few of them for you. Take out a concordance, pull it up on the internet, read scriptures, warnings against wrath and anger. Proverbs 14. 
He that is soon angry dealeth, dealeth foolishly. Proverbs 22 warns against anger and wrath. Verse 24, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man thou shalt not go. Why? Lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. That tells you anger is contagious. Hang around with a man with a temper long enough, you're going to start acting like the man with the temper. Proverbs 29. Verse 22, an angry man stirreth up strife, a furious man aboundeth in transgression. The list goes on and on. Paul exhorts us, be ye angry and sin not. There's a place for righteous indignation. But we're to be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Cain was quick to anger. There are practical lessons here, friends. Number three, what does Cain do when God comes to confront him? Where's Abel? I know not was a lie. He knew where he was. He buried him. I know not. That is a lie. Cain is a liar. In the Ten Commandments, when God revealed his morality to us, one of those commandments was, thou shalt not bear false witness. And so as people who fear God, we are to be the opposite of Cain, not jealous, not envious, and at all times honest. Honest people. Of these two men, which would you rather be like? I hope you'd rather be like Abel. Now we want to conclude our thoughts today with a brief reading of a passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. Today we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinklings, that is to say his blood sprinkled on us, redeeming us from all transgression. But listen to this next phrase. This blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. What did Abel's blood cry out for? Vengeance. What does the blood of Jesus Christ cry out for? Peace. Rather than being murdered, he laid down his life. And the blood that he shed, rather than crying out unto his father for vengeance, for judgment, it cries out unto his Father that the sin debt has been paid, redemption has been made through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The